Psalm number 90. I had mentioned that I have been asked about preaching from the Psalms, and I mentioned that I didn't want to do that sequentially, but did decide to do it occasionally. Now, within the conversations in my own head, whether I want to do it the first Sunday of the month, I don't think so, but did one the first Sunday of September and now the first Sunday in October. Let's go ahead and stand, please. And as Brian has already mentioned several times, the subject matter, and it's obvious enough from the heading that topic for our consideration this morning is Moses instructing us about how to pray. Psalm number 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. For the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger. And by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. And let's pray. Lord Jesus, the disciples asked to be taught to pray, and you graciously instructed them, and Father, help us to be thankful that we have so many wonderful patterns for our own prayer lives in the Bible. The prayers of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The prayers of the apostles. The prayers of men like Moses. And Father, help us to take these prayers to heart. Let our prayers not be quick, shallow, always selfish prayers. May that not constitute 
the body of our prayer life. And so we pray again that you would teach us not only how to pray, but teach to us the significance of praying. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, this is clearly the oldest psalm. The heading prayer of Moses, the man of God, is part of the inspired text. The author is declared to be Moses. There is almost no controversy anywhere by anybody about the authorship. The inspired heading tells us not only who wrote it, but what it is. It is a prayer. A prayer in musical form. It is a prayer to be sung. And as all such psalms, it is extremely poetic. Not inaccurate, but poetic in its description of accuracies. Music, of course, is not prose. It is poetic language. Moses' life, which lasted 120 years, can be easily divided into three periods of 40. He spent the first 40 years of his life living in the luxury of being an Egyptian prince. He spent the middle 40 years of his life living the life of a political exile, and he spent the last 40 years of his life as the leader of a covenant people. There is no question whatsoever but that this poem, this prayer, is written in the last third of his life. And in fact, beyond any controversy, we can pinpoint... Not the day and the day of the week, but the exact series of events that caused Moses to retreat probably to his tent and to pray this prayer to his God. Having been supernaturally delivered from the hands of the Egyptians, led across the dry bed of what had just moments ago been the Red Sea, God has delivered the entire nation of Israel to the place where he is ready to bring them into the promised land. It's a staging area. It's a temporary campsite where they will soon embark on what should be a relatively short walk into the land that God had promised Abraham hundreds of years before. In Numbers chapter 13 and 14, with a design to excite the people about the prospects of the land that they would inherit, 12 spies were sent. Rather than come back thrilled, as two of them did, the majority of the men brought back an evil report in which they called God a liar. And the people then, in Numbers 14, spent a sleepless night agitated and in criticism of how they had been brought 
to this place. All the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation, the whole nation, 600,000 men, said unto them, Would God we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness. At which time God takes their words that they had just spoken and turned them back upon them. Telling Moses, say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. And all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me, doubtless ye shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. And so it is at this event, rather than bringing back a unified report of the glories of the land of Canaan, and why should we take ten days if we push we can make it in eight days? They came back and said, oh, it's a good land, all right. Not that we could ever live there. There's no chance for us. We don't really know what Moses and Aaron were thinking, but if we can't go back, it would be better for us just to die right here. It appears, by the way, that it is this event, to go off in a bit of a tangent, that has triggered the modern day lifespan. Three score and ten. Perhaps by reason of strength 80. The World Health Organization states that as of 2019, the average worldwide life expectancy, 73.9 years. And I'm not trying to be funny. Somebody asked me a while back, how exactly, how does eternal security work? And I don't know all the answers to that, but I think I know one of the answers. One of the ways that eternal security works is this, God kills us. God kills us. If he just let us kept living, we would probably get to the place that he would be tempted to take our salvation away. He just kills us. And so the judgment upon humanity is issued at this time. Though no matter where we live or what we do, we're probably going to get to about 80 and that's going to be about the average. But this isn't a poem about life expectancy. It is a poem about God and man and the way that we should think about the works of God and the mind of man. The poem divides into two distinct trains of thought. I don't want to say stanzas. I don't know that there are two stanzas as we might sing them. But there are two distinct lines of thought. In verses 1 through 11, which we will just walk through relatively quickly, we have Moses' contemplation and confession. 
Part of Moses' prayer is just to think about God and to talk about what it means. He doesn't ask for anything. He's just talking to the Lord. He's thinking about God. He's thinking about God in the way he relates to the Israelites. He's thinking about God's activities. He's thinking about Israel. And he's talking. He's confessing. He points out by talking about the fact that God is eternal. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. It's really a beautiful thought. It's a wonderfully expressive piece of poetry. That wherever God's people have been, our dwelling place. Verses 1 and 2. For the mountains were brought forth, or thou hast formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. We, on the other hand, are mortal. We are not God. Verses 4 and 5. Or verse, <clears throat> verse number 4. <clears throat> For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, folks, but poor misguided souls have tried to turn this into some kind of a time predictor. But that's not at all what it is. It is a comparison of the great differences between us and God. God has always been our dwelling place. But he has always been God. He is eternal. We are mortal. A thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday. How long is a thousand years to you? A thousand years. I mean, we were, I was just talking to one of the guys after choir practice. We were talking about the glories of getting old. Say, are there glories to getting old? Well, I, I can tell you truthfully that my wife and I are spending about $1,000 less on health care now than we were six months ago. But after that, I don't know how many glories of getting old there are. A thousand years. A thousand years. Do we have any idea what was going on in the world a thousand years ago? You've got to be some kind of a history nerd to know about a thousand years ago. And yet to God, a thousand years is like yesterday. To God. Whoosh. A thousand years. It's like a watch in the night. It is like it is like going to bed at midnight and getting up at three that fast. And those days, verse number five, are carried away as with a flood. Watch some of the storm surge from Hurricane Ian. And that is the force with which God carries away time. And God is powerful. Moses is thinking. You are eternal and we are not. And you are powerful. 
and we are not. I, want to do, I do want to make this note about our translation for those of you looking at a King James. I, I really wish that I knew the answer to this, but I just don't. For all our days are <clears throat> passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale. And then you'll notice that our translators have supplied the expression that are told. The word that is tra- those words are added by the translators. They're not in the Hebrew text. The, word, the only word in the, that is in the Hebrew text is the word tale. And it is not used very often in the Bible. But it is never translated with the word story. In Job 37, 2, that is translated with the word sound because the word means moan. You may have a note to that effect. And in Ezekiel 2.10, it is translated as mourning. Not A.M. mourning, but M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, sadness mourning. So that what Moses is pointing out, folks, is that we spend our days as a sigh. Is that not true? Is it not true? You are eternal and you are powerful. We, on the other hand, are mortal and we are completely at your mercy, verse number 10. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. A thousand years to you is like nothing. Well, if a thousand years is like nothing, what is 70 years like to you? And again, if we did the math, which I don't know that you could do it mathematically, but what this means in God's judgment on 600,000 men, and we assume a similar number of women, is that every day for 38 and a half years, 85 people died. All is a consequence of the same event, Numbers 13 and 14. You are eternal, we are mortal, you are powerful, we are at your mercy. You know everything, Psalm 90, verse number 8. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of our countenance. Our sins exist in his face. That's the meaning. Our sins in his face. We have a world, folks, that is obsessed with cybersecurity, privacy. Don't tell anybody my search history. And all of our sins are right in his face. We have no secrets. You are eternal, we are mortal. You are powerful. We have the mercy of your power. We have no secrets. You know everything. And you are angry. And your anger is righteous. God's anger is the dominant strain of the prayer of Moses. That God has responded in anger to the murmuring and the complaining and the griping and the unbelief of these people.
And so he points out, verse number 7, we are consumed by thy anger. And by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of our countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a sigh. Because God is mad. Because God is mad. And he goes on, by the way, to point out verse number 11, which is the last of this major theme, his contemplating and confession is a little bit of a transition. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. We have some input. We have some input. Not all input, but we have some input. The greater the fear, the less likely the wrath. Now this is, by the way, tremendously unpopular today. As soon as something bad happens in the world, God takes the heat as if he has committed some injustice. And I would just caution us, folks, that we probably should be very, very careful about trying to selectively announce why God has brought some judgment to somebody else. I saw somebody on the left posted what I thought was a really great question. Where is the outcry against Governor DeSantis and the citizens of Florida that they're only getting what they deserve? But I would point out to you folks on the basis of Luke 13 that God is relatively indiscriminate, if I can use that word, that it becomes very difficult to pinpoint the reason for his judgment to any particular person's conduct, but it is equally biblically true that all human beings deserve only the wrath of God. Every human being deserves only the wrath of God. There are no undeserving human beings. There are those who are enjoying the beauties of mercy and grace, but they're not getting what they deserve. And it is the wrath of God directed towards the nation of Israel that colors Moses' prayer. This is what he's thinking about. He's thinking about the fact that God is eternal and he is not. And that God is powerful and he is not. And that God knows everything. And that God is bringing his great eternality and his power and his ability and his knowledge to bear on this really, really genuinely, within the scope of things, insignificant body of people. And he is troubling them. He is not ignoring them. He has turned his attention on them. And for the next 40 years, the dominating interaction that these people will have with God will be an expression of his anger. There will always be the undercurrents of his grace. He doesn't exterminate them, but he does talk about it. And that brings us then, beginning in verse number 12 to the end, to Moses' actual prayer. What 
Moses wishes in light of what Moses knows. Let us instruct ourselves from the text. Let it, first of all, be our own prayer. Our own prayer. That we would be frightened by the wrath of God. That we would be frightened by the wrath of God. I wrote that sentence and then I thought that is going to be a hard pill for New Testament people to swallow. It's also going to be a hard pill for people which I hope does not describe us but it does describe much of our country who are saturated with notions of high self-worth, high self-esteem, the fundamental goodness of man and the absolute abhorrence of any notion that anybody should suffer for anything that they have done. I do not mean for a moment, folks, that we do not live under the reign of grace, for we do, Romans chapter 5, we live under the reign of grace. And I do not mean that we do not have access to God. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy But why would you need mercy if God was not angry and find grace to help in time of need? And why would I not need grace if I was not weak? But folks, simply to think only in those terms is to distort the biblical image because while we are welcomed with open arms because of the kind grace and mercy of God, There is nevertheless, even for those of us living in the New Testament, the strong undertow of being afraid of him because of the greatness of his power. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Ephesians 5.21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Hebrews 12.28, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. 1 Peter 2.17, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Revelation 14, 6 and 7, during the tribulation, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, the everlasting good news to preach unto them that dwell on the earth to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Moses said, our sins are in his face. Our sins are in his face. Our secret sins in the light of his countenance.
Folks, this is not disconnected from our life. We can't just go, well, that was Old Testament and God was mad and this is New Testament and God is not mad. He is always mad at sin. He is always mad at those who perpetrate it. He is mad at those who celebrate it. He is always mad at sin. And even in the New Testament, Paul takes us right back into this moment. Numbers 13 and 14. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And in fact, folks, one of the questions that we should wonder is in light of the New Testament teaching about the indwelling presence of God's Spirit Is it not more dangerous to sin against him? May it be one of our prayers that we are frightened by the fear of God. Now, I hope that this is true in many homes, folks. Right? And, and, and what we do sometimes is we mitigate that. Well, you should have a reverential offer, God. And I'm not going to take exception to that. But I did not grow up in a Christian home. I did not grow up in the greatest home. My father was not a tyrant and my father was not a bully. In fact, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. My father never spanked me one time in his life. He spanked my sister enough for both of us. You say, were you that good of a kid? No, I wasn't that good of a kid. But my sister was in his face with her behavior, and I wasn't. But I was afraid of my father. I knew that there was seriousness there and that there was an anger not to be trifled with. I knew that. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with our children growing up afraid of their parents' righteous anger? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with a generation of young people who won't do certain things simply because they know their parents won't approve or they know their Lord won't approve? Is there no place for the fear of the Lord in in the church? Is there no place for us to ask I wonder if this would make God unhappy. To go back to Psalm number 90. Verse number 11. Who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath, so teach us to number our days. So teach us to number our days. Allow the wrath of God 
to instruct us. Be afraid of God. This is something that we should pray. This is something that we should pray for our children. God is not an ogre. He's not a brute. But he's, he's, not, he's not a plush toy. He is the living God. And so we should pray as Moses prayed for himself and as his people, as people that we would allow the wrath of God to frighten us, that it would, it would be part of our consciousness and our psyche that we don't wish to incur God's anger. Secondly, we should pray that the actions of God would satisfy it, satisfy us. Verse number 14, O satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Rather than complain, perhaps, over the circumstances which God has allowed perhaps we would be better off to be grateful for the mercy he has extended. There are several passages in the Bible, folks, in which Bible writers, one of them is in Job, have articulated their awareness that what they are experiencing is far less than what they deserve. Not a bad perspective to have on this world. There was a pastor in the Philadelphia area, the first time that I ever heard it said. He said everywhere he went when people asked him how he was, his answer was always the same, better than I deserve. Let the actions of God satisfy us. I just made mention of this, but it is worth keeping in the forefront of our minds when the disciples came back all thrilled at their ability to dominate demons. Jesus said, here's what should make you guys happy. Your names are written down in heaven. The greatest joy that we have, folks, is that our sins are forgiven. And we should be content to see the hand of God. Verse number 16, let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. We should pray that the activity of God would satisfy us, that we would see the hand of God at work. And in verse number 17, that we would work in such a way, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands, that we would work in such a way that God would make our work count. We're not terribly far away from it in 1 Corinthians. Paul will explain to the church at Corinth that every man is a worker, but not every man is building something that will withstand God's judgment. That every believer is participating in the building up of the church, but not all the activity that is done in the building up of the church will withstand the judgment. 
We should pray that we do the kind of works that will withstand God's scrutiny. So we should pray, folks, on the basis of verses 12 and 13 and the overall framework in which Paul's contemplating the wrath of God. We should pray that we would be afraid of God's anger. Help me to have the fear. Whatever the fear of the Lord is, should we not pray that we have it? Are we really well served by dismissing everything that we wish to do and everything that we want to say as being inconsequential and trivial? Because after all, this is the age of grace. Or should we not be colored by some awareness that it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God? written to New Testament people. And we should pray that we would be content with the things that He does. It is really unfortunate, folks, that God brings this great deliverance to these people and makes them the great promise about the promised land. And they spend 40 years in the wilderness just complaining about virtually everything that He did. And there is great, I think, New Testament analogy there. There's great New Testament lesson to be learned. We, like the Israelites, have been forgiven and our sins have been cleansed and we've been delivered from the clutches of the enemy. And we, like the Israelites, have been promised a great and glorious dwelling place in the future. And unfortunately, like the Israelites, we frequently spend the vast majority of our lives complaining about our lot right now. And thirdly, we should pray for, pray that the wisdom of God would instruct us. Verse number 12, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. The wisest man that ever lived said, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Moses, who is right up there in that kind of world, said, So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to a wisdom. And yet we find, as we have been exploring in the book of 1 Corinthians, that it is very easy to default to man's wisdom to human philosophy, to naturalistic explanations. Jesus, of course, is the wisdom of God, and so is the cross, 1 Corinthians 1.24. God's skill so teaches to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Do we ask the Lord, folks? I mean, of all the things that we pray, of all the ways that we pray and all the things that constitute our prayer list, do we pray? Or let me, let me, let me, let me change that, right? Let me back that up. Let me encourage you to add these things to your prayer list. To put them near the top. that we would have right respect for the anger of the Lord. 
that we would live with a healthy biblical fear of being displeasing to him. And let us pray that we will be content with the decisions he makes and the things that he does. Certainly, we will pray to him for things to be a certain way. Certainly, we will scour our Bibles looking for the biblical positions. But we will pray that we will be content with whatever he does and however he does it. And we add then to our prayer list this, that we would be taught his wisdom. How often God expresses us to us a desire to give to us his wisdom. Do you lack it? Let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. Do you need to know how to live in this world? There is a wise God who has made this world. Seek his wisdom. Let us expand our horizons in our prayer life, folks, beyond simply the physical health and the physical safety and the material well-being of those we know and love. Those things matter. They're legitimate prayer requests, but they are but a small part of it. Let's pray.